Fantastic. Well, we're mostly all sitting down now, so I'll introduce myself. My name's Ryan, and uh, as you said, this segment is, uh, as Pete said, this segment is called The Word with Ryan. It sounds like a, <laughs> sounds like a YouTube channel. Um, and yeah, I, I, I preach every so often here, and it's always a privilege to come preach, to open up God's Word and, and um, yeah, figure it out together, so to speak. Uh, we're finishing our series on the Upside Down Kingdom, and then the way Pete introduced it in, uh, in his, uh, you're so hard on yourself in your communion, you're like, oh, I did a terrible job. No, you did a great job. This whole idea of this Upside Down Kingdom, uh, we've been doing a series for five weeks on it. And uh, it, thought, it, it brought me back to um, something uh, in John, uh, where, where Jesus um, was about to be crucified, and he had a confrontation uh, with Pilate, he was brought before Pilate, and Jesus explained that his kingdom is not of this world, otherwise his followers would be fighting for him to be released. He also said that the very reason he was born and came into the world was to testify the truth. And that's what we're talking about, that Jesus was the bringer of this upside-down kingdom. And it's it, it kind of got me thinking, which way is the right way up is Jesus bringing the upside down kingdom which is creating it the right way side up is the world upside down Um, either way Jesus way is different and sometimes it's hard to understand that that is actually life-giving and it's truth especially when we're living in a world where it's saying the opposite the truth of Jesus is very different to today's truth Um, today's truth is um, it feels completely subjective sometimes um, it is up to the individual to determine what is right for them in their life. And so in an upside-down world, Jesus declares his kingdom the right way up. So I guess that is the right way. Um, so to finish this series, I wanted to tackle a topic that might be a bit uncomfortable. Um, it's something that doesn't get talked about much in church communities. However, it's something that dominates TV shows, movies, advertising, music, etc. Any guesses? Sex. Yeah. Um, That's just to kind of lift the tension because it's going to get a bit intense. Um, That was uh, Careless Whisper by George Michael, the sexiest song. Prove me wrong. Um, We're talking about sex. And why are we talking about sex? Because it is well known that the Christian view on sex is between a man and a woman. And it's only done in the confines of marriage. But why? I I think if we don't get to the question of why or we don't get to the answer of why, in moments of of desperation, in moments of, um, of, yeah, desire, um, in moments of temptation, uh, we will compromise the things we um, allegedly believe in um, for that cheap thrill or for that fulfilment. And I want to focus on 1 Corinthians Chapters 5 to 7, and if you have your Bibles with you, keep, keep a bookmark in that because I'll be kind of go- just going through that. Um, I don't want uh, it just to be my opinions and my words. I want to center it in the very Word of God. Um, and sometimes it takes a bit of digging because there's, it's, 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 there's heavy context involved, but truth is still truth. And, and God, um, the creator of sex, must have a pretty good idea of um, when sex should be used, when sex should not be used, and the, the benefits of sex within marriage and the dangers um, of sex when you do it outside of marriage. And I do know this is a huge topic, and, um, and, and I am super aware that um, 
in today's world, we, we, we have um, people who are same-sex attracted, we have people that um, have gen gender dysphoria and stuff like that, and we might not be able to get into all that today. But I do have some, um, some great books. Um, if, if anyone has any disagreements with what I have said, if, if you feel like you've been um, attacked or you feel like you've been um, ostracised or whatnot, my heart is, is not that at all. Um, we're a church um, that loves all people. Um, and, and we want to do life together and, and we're, we, we, we live for Jesus. And um, so if anyone, um, yeah, feels, um, yeah, anything from what I have come, uh, come up with or what I've talked about, come, come talk to me. I'll, I'll flick some resources to you. I'm happy to chat um, because, yeah, my heart is that, that everyone will come to know Jesus um, um, and not to feel excluded in any regard. And so you might be thinking, why would we Christians need to talk about sex? Uh, because we know the Bible and we know the stance, and so there's no need to talk about it. Um, but allow me to show you some graphs. People love infographics. Um, in a survey, this is, a, this is a, um, something that I found on the internet, um, and I think it's pretty good. Um, people that are statisticians and... and, and what not might disagree, but this is just going to give us a roundabout. So in a survey of 9,000 people, never married people in America in 2015, on the prevalence of sex before marriage, the following figures were found. Number one, percentage of never married young people who have had sex by religious affiliation. Um, there's a lot of numbers there, but uh, my summary is between 60 and 80% of people have had sex before and are Christians. Next slide. Across denomination, uh, sorry, uh, this one is percentage of never married people between 15 and 17, two or more sexual partners. And you can see the percentages are quite high, high 30s, mid to high 30s, was quite consistent, just with a few outliers. You might be thinking, yeah, but lots of Americans and lots of Australians, I'm not going to attack Americans, lots of people consider themselves Christians but don't attend church or don't even think of religion as important in their life. Well, let me show you some graphs. Percentage of never married evangelicals who have had sex by level of religious importance. And level uh, as well as um, attendance next to each other. And so you see... It does change uh, with, with uh, weekly attendance. But, it does, but the lowest one is there, 15 to 17-year-olds. So I guess that's encouraging. But it's still 20%. Um, but if we're, if we're interested in weekly in our more so age bracket, 51% of people still have had sex before. Marriage. Never married people that have had sex before. And my final one, um, combining them all together, percentage of never married people who have had sex, attend church weekly or more and say religion is very important to their daily lives by age and religious affiliation. And the average there, if you have a look at the blues, is about 40%. And so to be blunt, uh, in this room based off this data, and they're, 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 there's always problems with data, there's always outliers with data, um, there's always things that haven't been considered. Um, what if these people had sex before they became Christians? And by that, we wouldn't have the same standard. Um, this is also just talking about never married people. So what about people that are married, that have had sex before marriage? So there, there are outliers. But um, 
to be blunt, in this room, based off this data, almost half of us, and perhaps currently still are, committing what is considered sexual immorality according to the Bible, when the widespread teaching of, of no sex before marriage is one of the most accepted amongst the biggest Christian religions of Protestantism, Catholicism, and Orthodox Christianity. They all um, have differences, um, but they're pretty uniform on this one. And I don't share these stats to be condemning. Um, I want to be completely honest. I'm, I'm in that statistic. I had sex before I got married. And I'm, I'm talking from experience. And my heart is that if we are struggling with it right now, we need to talk about it. If we're struggling with it right now, we need this to be an open conversation. We need to understand why God created parameters, not just to be a killjoy, but because he loves us so much. And he wants us to live life and have it to the full. But sometimes that looks very different to what the world is saying. And yeah, and so I think because of this intimate nature of this topic and how deeply personal it is, and also the increasing you know, individualism within our society, um, it doesn't get talked about enough. We don't understand the divine design of sex and also the power and danger of sex if used incorrectly. And so we can't shy away from this topic. We need to talk about it because we're all young Christians and we're all, uh, most of us, desiring to, to have a partner um, and have sex. Um, and so it's a temptation every day. And so let's open up our Bibles to hear from God because I don't want it just to be my thoughts. I want it to be God's thoughts. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1 to 7 says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that not even pagans tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens or leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. I think we need to start with sexual immorality. What does that even mean? Um, in the Greek, it's the word pornea, and that's where we get the word pornography from. And as we'll see in the rest of the chapter, and I invite you to read this chapter in its full context because we won't be able to get to every single bit. But Paul has a view where sex should be explored and where it should not be, and therefore sexual immorality can be defined based off um, this chapter and other parts in the Bible as sex outside of the covenant of marriage. And we need to get that right because in times of temptation and desperation, we will try to twist that and go, oh, but. Oh, but there was no dating in, in the Roman world in the first century. It was either you got... Um, you got, you know, betrothed to be married at six years old and then, and then you got married at 12, you know. There was no dating, so it doesn't apply to us. I think that's a bit of an outlying straw man argument. And a little background on who Paul is talking to, um, a, a colony or a church in Corinth, which was a Roman colony, uh, which was home to Greeks, Romans and Jews from various locations. It was a business hub with a transient but wealthy population. Sounds like Canberra. It was also heavily influenced by Greek philosophy. And on a separate but sometimes related factor, it was a fertile ground for all types of immorality. And so no wonder the Corinthian church was plagued with numerous problems. And if you read 1 Corinthians all the way through, you'll see that Paul addresses a lot of problems. 
It seems that even in first century Rome, when we're looking at this, this opening passage, that there was a line um, in regards to immorality. And the Corinthian church had crossed that line, taking his father's wife. Can we agree that that form of sexual morality is, is, is off limits? Uh, that you wouldn't go there? Why? Why? Why is it that um, most people are happy with run-of-the-mill sexual immorality, sex out of marriage, um, uh, just between two single people, but, but we're not okay with this? What was happening in the Corinthian church was that they were being influenced by philosophy and influenced by um, um, ways of thinking and were puffed up in their knowledge, and so they decided for themselves what was right and wrong. They replaced God, and it says that they were proud of it. You're proud of your decision to, to make this okay in your circle, in your, in your church. I think the similarities between Corinth and today are undeniable. Um, a world of wealth, business, alternative truths and philosophies, and this, you can't, you can't shy away from it, it has the potential to influence us. Regarding sex, culture is dictating what is right and wrong, and we are being swayed to accept all forms of sex because the loudest voices are telling us that your truth is what is important. You be you. So we as Christians sometimes make concessions for our own sexuality, but also we make concessions for our fellow Christians' brothers and sisters within the church. We are too afraid to have this conversation, so we let it be. And by letting it be, we take on the same problem as the leaders in the Corinthian church. We have taken place of God and decided what is right and proud about it. And so Paul says, your boasting is not good. But Paul is very clear that sin is like leaven in bread. So leaven is like yeast. And if you don't get rid of the leaven, it will spread through the dough and affect it all. And so sexual immorality, according to Paul, has the potential to affect more than just the individual. It has the potential to affect the whole church, if not addressed early. But you might be thinking, sex is personal. How could it possibly affect anyone else? How could it affect me personally if it's just a physical act? How could it affect other people if I'm having sex outside of marriage or premarital sex? And I guess my conclusion, I said it before, is, and this is not a conclusion, this is like an intro to the conclusion. Did you design sex? I once had a conversation with Papa um, about a month ago where uh, he's, a, he's a med student. And he said that part of his uh, course um, was one time he sat down with, with other med students and they had to watch the video from conception to birth, the whole thing. And I'm sure it traumatised you a bit. It would traumatise a lot of people. But you can't deny the miracle of creating life. You can't deny the, the, the design in it that... That God created male and female in a complementary way, that parts would work together, that a seed would form in, in, in the woman's belly, and then nine months later, a fully formed human being that looks almost like you, um, just a little bit more wrinkly, um, and grows into the likeness of you. 
Wow. Can't deny that there has to be a, d- a design. And so if you didn't design sex, how the hell do you think that you know better? Like, really? How do I know it? How do I think I know better? How do you know you think better? Like, we don't. And so why is sexual immorality so bad? And, and what is the power of sex? 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 15 says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will be not mastered by anything, you say. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Sometimes we read that whole thing, and the only thing we get out of it is Paul just called people prostitutes. Um, so go easy on him. He's not saying that every woman or, or any person... Um, is a prostitute. In Corinth, if it's an epicenter of business and culture, um, it was known that prostitution was quite prolific throughout the city. And so most commonly, if you were to commit sexual immorality, it would be done through the means of prostitution. You wouldn't, you wouldn't go have sex with your, your next door neighbour um, because it would be known in an honour and shame culture. So you would seek other ways for it to be Um, swept under the rug. So he's not calling all women prostitutes or anything like that. He's just saying, don't use sex. And I'll explain it. Don't use sex in that way, and I'll explain why. It says that everything is permitted, but not everything is beneficial. And this is the cry of Paul, and it should be the cry of us when we are thinking about life. It is true that we have free will, and therefore the capacity to do many things, but all, are all of them beneficial to us. And this is the crux of the message and the heart behind Paul's teachings on sexual immorality. Is having sex before marriage or outside of marriage going to be beneficial for you? Food for the stomach and stomach for the food. And this is referring to sex. The cry of the Corinthians and perhaps our cry when we face temptation is that the body is made for sex and sex is made for the body. And sex and sexual identity is one of those things that most people feel so intrinsic and natural to them. So don't mishear me that I'm being callous towards um, the power of sex. I completely understand. But it says, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? That's uh, 16 to 17. For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. I feel the conviction coming through. This is a bit weird. This is a weird thing that I do, but I often listen to my own sermons and convict myself. (laughs) And you might might think that that's uh, a bit narcissistic, but um, I like to say it's research. Um, (laughs) But in any regard, um, it is a tough passage to get through, and so I don't want to rush through it. I want it to, us to be able to meditate on it. And so we must keep in mind here that Paul is going hard on sexual immorality, 
but he has been criticised for having a low or even negative view on sex. And although his singleness comes out in the passages that we read in some parts, he doesn't in any way have a negative view of sex. And I think in this verses 16 to 17, we start to key into the, to the design, God's grand design of sex and marriage and how separating them is so harmful. If we, if we have a look at the word flesh and um, where he gets his language from, I'm going to say a lot of flesh, so if you get uncomfortable in this. But this, the two will become one flesh, comes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where it says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Flesh. We can, we can be forgiven, especially in this context, for thinking that Paul is talking about just the physical union of sex by referring to this verse. That it's nothing more than that. It's just a physical union. It's just sex. But the term flesh in the Bible is so much more than a sexual union. So although these words don't mean less than a physical union, they certainly mean so much more, and I'll explain. There are a couple of verses in the Bible, Genesis 6.12, where it says that all flesh had been corrupted by their way on the earth. And then in Joel 2.28, it says, God will pour his spirit out on all flesh. These passages did not mean that God was pouring out his spirit on just their bodies, especially Joel 2.28. He's saying that he was going to pour his spirit on them whole, not just body, but mind, spirit, soul. He came to save all of it, not just the body. You know, using this term flesh in this, in this um, passage is a figure of speech in which a part of something is used to represent a whole. And so when we're talking about flesh in this context, he's not just talking about a physical union of sex. He's talking about whole mind, body, soul, and spirit joining. And so if we think about marriage of two becoming one flesh, it's not just the physical union. It's becoming two in all facets of their life. And this is the healthiest type of marriage. If you are completely vulnerable and honest with all parts of your life, emotional, economic, social, societal, you are now one unit and that bond is forever. In marriage, vulnerability is encouraged, but also safety is achieved in marriage. There should be no one that knows you better than your spouse. And that's actually a good thing. It sounds like a scary thing if people, have, people here have a fear of commitment, but it's actually a great thing. To have someone that knows you in and out and is committed to you no matter what, that is special. And that sounds like something else, some sort of other relationship we'd have with someone. Like Jesus. Someone who has seen you at your best times and at your worst times. A, gov- a covenant of give and take and of serving each other, that is the place for sex. A covenant of whole giving to each other in all aspects of life and a place of safety and vulnerability. And so the Bible is saying here, don't unite with someone physically unless you are prepared to unite with a person emotionally, personally, socially, economically, and even legally. Don't become physically naked and vulnerable. 
to the other person without becoming vulnerable in every other way first. Because you have given up your freedom and are bound to them in marriage. And so what does sex look like in marriage? It becomes a way in which you continually give yourself to your spouse. Sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently and exclusively to you. You must not use sex for anything else. And so according to Paul, sex with a prostitute is wrong because most people are not planning to live with that person and give themselves wholly to them. Prostitution is the separation of love and sex to just a physical act. And this is a good one from C.S. Lewis. He likens sex without marriage to tasting food without swallowing and digesting. I don't know if that helps. It's a bit gross. It's a bit graphic. It's not meant to be. And so verse 18 says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were brought at a price and therefore honour God with your bodies. The passage says this is the only sin that sins against the body, their own, your own body. And so I think we should be, like, that's a warning of how damaging it can be to have sex outside of marriage, either premarital or adultery. And we haven't touched much on pornography and masturbation, but that is true as well. That is sexual immorality. I think sex can be likened to an addictive drug sometimes. And once you cannot get that anymore, there can be an unhealthy attachment to it. And it's almost like withdrawal. Sex is the single most vulnerable and naked, emotionally and physically, you can be with someone. And so, and you, you see it in all the movies, special bonds are formed. Friends with benefits never end with friends with benefits. There's always someone that ends up catching feelings. And that is such a slap in the face because that's what, you, what happens in sex. That is quite natural that you catch feelings. It's almost like it was designed that way, to bond with someone. Sex outside of marriage also makes, you know, breakups emotional. The beauty of a covenant in marriage, more or less, it's sickness and in health. That's what it says. And therefore, there is no escape. And so, sex outside of marriage, there is always a potential for a breakup. I'm not saying it always happens, and I'm not, I'm not having, showing, um, I'm not showing shade at, at people who, who have successful relationships and marriages who have had sex first, but this is a, a deeply Christian teaching for, for Christian people. It also causes many people to stay in unhealthy relationships sometimes as well, and I can attest to that that I dated a girl in uni and, and we were together for five months and by all accounts, it was a very unhealthy relationship. There was a lot of putting each other down, there was a lot of name calling, there was a lot of anger. But because there was sex, I stayed a bit longer because of that emotional tie that I felt with that person. And this is the danger 
of sex before marriage, the long-term effects that, that is to yourself but then to other people. And, and, and the pain that I felt when she broke up with me was immense. It got me, it got me real good. Furthermore, when I met Nicole, I had to explain that the special bond that we have, you know, four years into marriage, the special bond that we have, the personal, deeply personal thing that I do with her and no one else I have once done before with someone else, the emotional connection that I have with Nicole, I've also had with another woman. Do you know how deeply painful that was for Nicole and how deeply painful it was for me to be able to go through that? But thanks be to God because Nicole didn't break up with me and she forgave me. And, you know, if, if a woman is willing to forgive you, <laughs> or you uh, it's, it, it seems like she has a heart of, of God and, and you, you grab her and you marry her. <laughs> and so if we continue, I'm going to skip to 1 Corinthians 7, 32 to 35. And this is where it kind of, we're, we're changing gears because, you know, it sounds like we're idolizing sex, we're idolizing marriage. There's no other way. But old mate Paul has got some things to say about it. He says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in body, in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul is saying, don't be too quick to get married. From this verse, we can think that Paul is just super negative about marriage and wants everyone to be celibate like him. But I believe he's just being realistic about marriage. Although it's a great thing, you will encounter things that single people won't encounter. You'll encounter troubles. And any married person can attest to this. If we're talking about, um, you know, the world saying sex is the best thing ever that you'll ever have in life. You don't end up having sex every day in marriage. Um, I think it's particularly important. Uh, it's, it's affected, it affected me, so I can only speak from a male experience, but, but we are conditioned to think that sex is the number one experience in our life and we are conditioned to, to, to think that if we get it in many different varieties of ways with many different people, with all kinds of perversions, that that is life. That is the best thing you'll ever get. That is the best experience in life. Um, I just don't think that's true. And Nicole hates me telling this story, um, but, but she knows where I'm coming from and she's very loving and forgiving. But about three months into Nicole, being married with Nicole, I had a bit of an ex existential crisis. And this is not to say that what Nicole and I have is, is not great. It's just how I felt at the time. I was laying there in the bed thinking, is this it? Is this 
what the world has been telling me as the pinnacle of life, marriage and sex, the thing that is going to fulfill and sustain me forever. I got to in my head and it began to rock me a bit. But here's the thing, I was putting too much pressure on marriage and I was putting too much pressure on sex. I was, I was elevating it to something that it's not. Because it says in the Bible that marriage reflects Christ and the church and the vulnerability that you share with your spouse is a glimpse into the complete wholeness you have with Christ when you meet him. But if marriage becomes idolised and replaces Jesus, it won't measure up and it will always disappoint. And so as a single person right here, right now, you actually have an advantage over married people. As it says in the, in the, in the passage, inadvertently my attention is split between God and Nicole. And when Nicole's going through a rough patch, I've got to be there for her. And my relationship with Jesus is always going to take a back seat. And it shouldn't be the case, but the reality is it, it does happen. And so if you're single here and you're desiring to be married, there are other bits in 1 Corinthians 6, 5 to 7 that says, don't be in a rush because you've got an advantage. You've got, a, you've got this, this great time to solidify your relationship with Christ, to get really strong with him. And so with all this information in mind, and I could keep going, um, my original uh, sermon was about 6,000 words and I cut it down to 3,000 um, because I am passionate about this topic and I do want us as, as single, uh, single people or married people, Christians in general, to, to, to in confidence be able to, um, to live in this world with sex not being a temptation um, that, that has the potential to, to unravel our lives and our faith. You know, we've talked about the danger of sex outside of marriage. We've talked about the power of sex, um, the design, the beautiful design and what it does within marriage. But on the flip side, I've also said marriage is not always bells and whistles. And so don't get married too soon. It sounds contradictory and hopelessly unhelpful. And so you might be thinking, what do we do with that, Ryan? Very good argument, but I think I'm more confused. And if you are, it's probably because I don't have all the answers. You can have all the information and well-informed arguments in the world, but it can't always help with how you are currently feeling. If the stats are true that half of us are currently battling with sexual immorality and you feel helpless in the fight, you're in this cycle of doing well, then getting tempted, trying to resist, failing, beating yourself up about it. And usually we stay in the beating yourself up about it, but there's more. What we need to is remember these, these fantastic biblical truths and the more we speak it out over our lives, um, the first one is grace. We need to be continually reminded that we have received grace through the blood of Christ. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all righteousness. So also repentance leads to forgiveness, leads to restoration. 
I'm not asking you to put up your hands right now and confess in front of everyone. But bringing this out of the shadows and into the light makes it less dangerous. Confessing to the Father and turning from your sin, even if you have to do it a hundred times. It is better than never confessing at all. And I do believe you can't receive this gift of forgiveness and feel restored without first confessing and repenting of wrongdoing. And so my encouragement for you, and we're going to get up and uh, uh, Nicole's going to come play music for us. Um, in this time, we're going to sing. But also, if, if you are struggling, find someone you trust. Find someone that, that knows you. Find someone that you trust, that you can be vulnerable with, that you can be completely honest with. And, and in the midst of us worshipping God through song, um, this is a perfect time for people to pray for you. It does take the first step, though, for you guys individually, if you are struggling, to go to someone that you trust and say, hey, I'm struggling, I need you to pray for me. I just want to end with one last. Is there one more? No, there's not. What does that verse say, Nicole? <laughs> Jump the gun just. Psalm 19, verse 7 to 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing to the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise to the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. Sometimes all we've got is trust. Even when we feel like it's hopeless, even when we feel like we're in an uphill battle and we're in this cycle. And sometimes when we, we trick ourselves into thinking that, that what God said in the Word was not actually for you now, and that you have a right to, to, to fulfill any desire. I want you to come back to that verse trust that the design the creator of sex the creator of everything that we have in this world knows you so well and loves you so much that he even cares about your sex life and that when we trust him in all aspects of our life but also with our sex life which we've seen has a potential to affect our body affect other people affect people you care about if we trust him and we create a community that trusts him and we create a conversation about trusting him and about loving him and about sharing our struggles with each other I do believe we can, we can tackle this I do believe we will see deliverance from these things and it starts with trust starts with being vulnerable with your father and with your, with, your, with your friends and family around you in the church. So I'm just going to pray. I'm going to sing. And, and, and if you do need prayer, come up. Come and touch me. I can, I can get up the back if you want. Come to any of your life leaders, any of the friends that you would trust. And let's just pray. Let's just pray in faith that God can help us through this. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for who you are and, and that you called us to be children of you. 
that in you we find our hope, in you we find fulfillment, in you we find peace. Now, Lord, we, we, we pray over this, over this conversation, we pray over this congregation, that, Lord, you will help us to be delivered from the pain of, of sexual temptation, the pain of sexual immorality. Pray, Lord, that you will help us to become more vulnerable with each other and more accountable with each other because the stats say that most of us have struggled with it or still are struggling with it. Help us, Lord, to create a community that loves each other, that accepts people in their mess, that points to the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.